0: Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startup to enterprise and everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's fastest-growing resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to, follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome. And thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 30, and it's bittersweet because it marks the end of our awesome first season and the last of our conversations with product managers here in Los Angeles. Today's guest is my longtime friend and collaborator, Andrew Botis. Andrew is the chief technology officer of the Development Factory, a product consultancy in downtown L.A., He's here to talk about product management from a developer point of view and give insight to the number one question I'm asked, which is, how technical does a product manager need to be? We'll meet Andrew in just a moment, but please stick around after the interview for more information about season two episodes airing this June and how you can keep learning product management for free at 100productmanagers.com.
1: loved technology I, I come from Eastern Europe and uh, I remember you know things weren't really that great uh, back when I was a kid there but a cousin of mine he brought a game it was a duck hunting game you, you could shoot ducks basically and you moved kind of left and right and the guy had like four positions and the ducks had only ten positions and uh, it was really my first technical thing that I ever saw but it was uh, it was really amazing for me it's odd that I remember that, I guess, but I, I think that was like the first exposure to technology per se. And uh, I loved the idea, you know, my my grandfather and my parents were into kind of uh, building things. My dad was a civil engineer. My grandfather made various things using wood. He was the, the wheel man as he was called in, in, the, in that village. And so I loved building things and I was exposed to this technology and, and I loved it. Ever since then, I I always liked to tinker with it, do things with it. My brother was into technology and he brought home. I remember one summer, uh, he brought home a Amiga. I I don't know whether people still know that, but it used to be a computer platform and system and I used to render things with it and program. And, uh, you know, I guess it just kept snowballing into that. And then I went to university for. Uh, Cognitive science, uh, another one of my interests, psychology and and computer science. And that was all great good, but um, I guess I didn't like the pace of it. I didn't like academia and and my inability to be flexible about what I learned and the pace of my learning and essentially dropped out. And uh, that's when I got a job as uh, as really a project manager in technology.
0: Where are we in the, the timeline here? How old are you at this point? I was
1: 18, I dropped out and basically joined a startup, a hosting company, created kind of a web development company, and I joined them as the lead developer slash project manager and, and tried to get uh, built, I guess, products that even at that point, I didn't know it wasn't defined as such, but basically it was products. So that was 1998, I think, when all that went down. And uh, as you know, uh, the market kind of crashed a year later. And that was kind of the great reset. I had a good job at the time, actually. They were paying me an insane amount of money for my my age and experience. And uh, you know, I was so I guess arrogant or gung ho. I quit on my own accord, even though the markets crap. No one has jobs in in tech at that point. They still have me. They fired like uh, half the people there, or let go rather. And I was just um, really. I was like, I'm leaving. I have a different vision, and uh, I was really it was really something uh, looking back at it.
0: It sounds like this uh, history of refusing all kinds of things. I, ref- I reject this university structure. I'll do better on my own. I reject this startup environmental.
1: Well, I mean, not to get into psychology too much, but yeah, I, I think I have a strong uh, problem with authority figures and uh, really listening to anybody, especially when I don't agree with them and we were creating a competitor sales force it was called sales metrics we were building that and we brought in a ceo so i was kind of the lead in in that whole effort and then we brought in a proper ceo his name was leo nat and he worked at some other software company more traditional software company and it was sold for millions of dollars and so he was brought in to you move that product forward, get investors on board and really start the company. We had the essentially the MVP, we had early adopters, we had several companies sign up, it was going well and Leo was brought in and basically at that point the owner of the company didn't like that direction. He wanted us to build things for his call center basically, he owned this huge chain of call centers in Canada, pretty much the leader in call centers. And when we kind of put all this together and started investor meetings about getting uh, funding, he didn't like the structure we created in that and how we would integrate investors, how we would kind of evolve the company and basically terminated the project. That's at this point is when I was like, you know what, I don't agree, I'm leaving, you know. I could have sat there and taken that huge salary, really looking back after many years of struggling and being an entrepreneur, you know, maybe I could have made some different choices and just, uh, Saving some money for a while and then you know trying to do something, but you know I was a bit hot-headed and, and that was that.
0: That was the last time you were an employee. It's at that point we met. Uh, 2006. 2006,
1: um, where I was again working on another startup. Uh, I have like a whole series of startups behind me, and we were raising money, and you were in capital markets, and that's how we met. And I, I think then then we joined to. Kind of work on this marketing company and quickly realized that it's, uh, you know, our, our technical proficiency was more evident to clients and could be better taken advantage of to actually create a more sustainable and growing business.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny listening to you and, and looking back on the events because we're talking about sort of early, mid 2000s and technology at that time, in my recollection, was flash presentations. That was a big thing. All the, yeah, all the companies, you know, all the investor relations companies wanted flash presentations and basic HTML, you know, three, four page websites. And the landscape has changed so drastically, both in terms of what is possible now with the web and just the way that companies are thinking about product.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's it's an evolution of, of the mentality around these concepts and how prevalent they are at kind of the top and executive levels. When you look at the practical things in development, it's funny how often these things move in cycles. And you know, early in the early days of Mac, for example, he had something called Hyperstack, which was a lot was a lot like Flash. And then Flash came along and what was really repurposed hyperstack in a way And now we have HTML5, which is really repurposed Flash in a way. The constructs and concepts used to develop in these things are very similar. ActionScript was like HyperStack, JavaScript is like ActionScript. And it's just this constant cycle of reinvention in some ways people high up in in, uh, software say that we're not progressing, we're just kind of redoing the same thing rather than going deeper into evolving languages or platforms in a more meaningful way. But anyway, I I guess it's like fashion in a way, you know, it just comes back and back again, looked at a different way in a different context.
0: So you're mostly, except for sort of that brief period in computer sciences, as you describe, mostly self-taught. And what's interesting to me is we're very much in this era of online learning, online education, organizations like General Assembly, you know, offering programs, bringing people in, learn to be a web developer in 12 weeks. And it starts to raise this question, I think, for a lot of people. Well, a couple different questions. One, can you really, you know, learn to be a proficient web developer in... In a twelve-week format or a three-month format, and I think too, where do you, as a, an aspiring developer, put your energy? What's the right programming language to learn? That feels like it's a bit of a moving target, I would imagine.
1: You know, first to 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 speak to kind of are these courses viable options for learning? I really think they are, and I think over time I noticed. You know, early on, in a way, I was frustrated by others other people's inability to learn the way i do and i I learned by you know any it could be any source i i listen i read and i practice a lot Uh, but some people require structure and by structure i mean they need an actual instructor they need to be guided specifically through through certain steps they're not self-learners and so i think part of this huge thing about online courses is It depends kind of how you approach learning and what works for you. And for the people who are are self-learners, I think it's it's an awesome landscape or, or, you know, environment because there's so much material available. You can literally learn anything you want. And it's uh, there's excellent courses. And I think your second question was, where do you start with development? What's the right thing? And I, I always thought in development, you either have a strong, shall I say, logical core and then you can apply that. So maybe I I don't know how to answer that cleanly in in that what specific language you wanna use. I think something popular today, easy to adapt is JavaScript. It's very malleable, you can play with it. You have kind of online editors where you can kind of see what you're doing instantly and really try to understand concepts quickly. Uh, So I would say JavaScript is a really easy way to approach it. And I think you know you're a great developer if you have a great, logical or mathematical mind if you like math if you have logic if you like sciences they're very good indicators that your mind is kind of suited for this type of activity and it's a good start like GA three months or you know these courses Uh, but I think if you want to be good you have to be on it all the time like I coded all the time I think Malcolm Gladwell his name he says you have to do 10,000 hours to be great at something and I definitely agree with that you have to be practicing and playing with it all the time for whatever reason it could be you know you you could see a lot of uh, people online do things like their own little projects to be like i want to create a doorbell or a video that's connected to an api that's connected to a web page you know whatever you invent is good just play with the the medium and, and kind of implementing logic and connecting services and that kind of thing
0: Yeah, I mean, it it comes up a lot equally in the product management stream, especially because, as I often say, product management is way less about specific things you can learn and way more about learning to think differently about specific situations. So it's conceptual. And concepts need to be assimilated over time and through application. So that's that challenge of, I've learned all this stuff. I'm amped up and I'm ready to apply it, and then needing to find a job to apply it in, a project to apply it in. Sounds yeah, you clear, have to, it?
1: and you have to, you have to like that. That's why I say, you know, a, a good maths or sciences background. You kind of, you you have you have to have interest in it. You have to have interest in how things work. Why, you know, how do you break something apart? How do how does it work on the inside? And assimilation is a good word there's one thing to read or kind of consume some content that explains a concept, but you can only truly assimilate something by doing it. And so you you have to do it. You have to try different things. And you know, the really awesome thing in technology is you, you can fail or make errors and it doesn't matter. You just write more code or the feedback loop is so fast. And so fluid, you can really feel almost what's happening when you work with code and in that way it kind of feels tactile i was talking about my grandfather and his workshop i remember being a kid there and that feeling of tactility when you're making something out of wood for me anyway programming is in some ways the same way it feels like you you have a direct connection about what's happening and when you code and when you kind of experiment with stuff it, it, you know you can get results you can see what's happening it, it feels like you're connected with with uh, what you're doing
0: this is a big theme of our show is the unusual path that that folks take to find themselves into product i mean your your path wasn't so unusual from the vantage of you know a young kid who discovers electronics and and digital things then sort of falls in love with the the tinkering and the building but it it is unusual for a developer in that you also really embrace the entrepreneurial path which is A different sort of creativity and a different sort of challenge and typically a more or has a more extroverted requirement and you have been here in development and then you you were in design you've been entrepreneurial and so all of those are kind of the flavors that make up the product manager journey and now mostly your work is in that like I described that pressure cooker center of business technology and design, but you're a technical guy, chief technology officer, and so weigh in for us on this question that that I certainly get asked a lot, which is how technical does a product manager need to be?
1: You know, obviously, I I listen, or maybe not obviously, but I listen to the show, uh, and I've heard a lot of perspectives, uh, and that's why the the show is really good. You kind of see how different people apply themselves in different companies. And I used to think, honestly, that you you needed to be technical. I I really didn't see a world where a product manager didn't have a good understanding of technology. For me, if you're building software products, the the technology aspect is like knowing your medium. For me, it seems absurd. You you have to know, you know, the materials, the the, how it works, how it's put together, what are kind of key points, uh, key problems that could happen with assembly. But having said that, I am leaning more towards, uh, it's not necessarily as deep as I thought it, it needs to be uh, because there are other quite important aspects, you know, especially around knowing the customer, getting out of the building, getting a feel for the market. You know, those are so important in terms of building the right product. You know, the technical aspect is knowing how to build the product, but that doesn't mean you know how to build the right product and and there's a big difference there and especially having gone through uh, so many startups many of them that failed what i've realized is the importance of of those aspects the importance of of the research and understanding and not making assumptions and not building too much too soon without really knowing where the market's at and what it's ready for and these concepts existed before you know that there there were brand people before there were business analysts before there all this stuff existed, I think what's different is the construct is, is more refined, it's more holistic in terms of that singular overseeing perspective about what does it mean to have a product. I still feel you need some technical knowledge and ability, but you don't need to have been a developer, uh, per se. It's, it's also important to have the front facing, the marketing sales, the research aspects in you uh, as well.
0: This is a common pressure, I think, for PMs is wanting to be a knowledge expert and learning to be comfortable with the fact that you're playing, a, you're, you're part of a cross-functional team and the folks representing those functions are there to be the resident experts of those domains. So your job as a PM is less about knowing their job and more about knowing just enough about what that is so that you can translate it across other team members and sort of pull it all together for the vision i think as you're yeah.
1: talking about yeah that. exactly it's knowing the important aspects of each of those domains of knowledge and so basically you can't know that without knowing the domain so it's it's for me, you can't get away with not knowing anything in, in technology or the business aspect or the marketing or every aspect of a business because how do you know which parts are the important parts? How do you know which parts are important when you talk to developers? How do you know which parts are important when you talk to the, to the executives, the business stakeholders? How do you know which parts are important to customers and what where could it go wrong? Where could it go right? What What do you need to focus on? And so you you can't get away with not knowing all of them to the degree where you can kind of extract what are the important parts that, that I need to understand and I need to be able to kind of speak to that domain, people in that domain so they understand me.
0: Would you be willing to, since you're here, help PMs listening everywhere understand a little bit more about the technical domain? sure <laughs> the 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 place that I want to start is this tech stack right you hear this term kind of thrown around a lot and if you're not as you say if you don't really understand how digital products are put together maybe it's just a term that you're not familiar with so let's start there what is the tech stack and what is inside of it
1: yeah I mean I think that even that term has kind of Conflated and evolved a little bit over time. I think originally it kind of meant the software components that make up your platform or solution. So it, it traditionally referred to like what's at the database layer, what's at the business logic layer, what's at the interface layer. So I guess to step back a bit, that's a traditional way of breaking apart or thinking about an application is thinking about it in, in these three layers. And that's kind of the three layers of any software application conceptually. The, the interface part, which is really what the users are interacting with. The business logic layer, which is really what takes user input or information or system information from that and translates it in some way. So the kind of the, the thing that has contains the logic of what's happening to the data. And then the database, which is the storage layer, which is basically storing that data permanently so the permanent storage layer. And so in in the more traditional sense, it referred to the software you select for each of these layers. You could say something like, my tech stack is Microsoft SQL, .NET, and JavaScript, and those represent the uh, principal software languages or softwares used in putting together my application. And I think it's evolved a bit because one the the conceptual and, and introduction of APIs which create a little bit of, se- of cleaner separation between these layers and also saas products so sometimes people can say tech stack and they they really mean the type of software tools that i use to manage my software development or manage my process around creating software so it could be we use pivotal tracker for example we use slack you know, the technical stack around the process, around the workflow of managing development.
0: Yeah, the term that that I'm hearing coming out is now the product stack.
1: Yeah, the product stack. So many stacks, it's hard to
0: keep track of them all. So to go back to the tech stack, at at least the the traditional definition as you've outlined it, has that changed? or, Or you said API's have changed that? Take us Give us the very quick version of APIs. I think this is another product management is so littered with acronyms. It's a yeah, scary no, I, place I hate, to navigate. I hate
1: acronyms too.
0: So what are APIs and how do they fit into this traditional layer of software components as you described?
1: API means application programming interface. So it's really the exposed part of a, of a part of an application that needs to interact with some other part. So APIs existed since software existed. Uh, it's not a new thing in terms of the concept. What's new and why it's kind of out in the public now is this concept of the REST API or the JSON API, which is you know the fact that I can consume or interact with a software on some server somewhere else using kind of a standard way of of interacting json javascript object notation another acronym so it's really the exposure of the business logic of the application in this json api that allows me to interact with it using my software that i built in my interface so let's take an example because that's very loaded Uh, let's say i want to build a weather application or rather a travel application that you know i can check flights with and also see the weather in a particular place okay and so
0: far sounds good yeah
1: (laughs) so i start building it and in the world before apis the information for what's the weather like in a particular place or where are flights coming and going from and how much they cost it would be very difficult to get that information you would have to integrate kind of these systems and they were very complicated ways to integrate or you could somehow you know get your own data that you put into your data center it's tremendously costly and complicated and you would have like a hundred people working on this trying to figure it out and you know contacting the, the airlines and the weather bureau or whoever has this data and figuring out how is their data stored and how are we gonna get there and we have to install stuff in your side and install stuff on my side. So it's incredibly complex. And with what's changed with APIs is now the the weather people or the company that has the weather data exposes that information through an API, through a JSON API. And the flight company exposes their information through also a JSON API. So now when I'm creating this travel application, I don't need to go there, I don't need to talk to them. I have a way to retrieve that data quickly, uh, accessibly, and integrate it into my application. So I create that application, I put in a city and I query, I ask the weather API, hey, what's the weather in that location? And it responds back easily and with the data that I need, and I query the flight uh, company and they respond back with the information and boom, I integrate it into my application. And that all could happen, you know, over a few days, I could integrate that data and put it into my, into my application.
0: If I understand correctly, as you're describing it, essentially different products are loaning aspects of their data or their business logic to other products.
1: Exactly. And there's
0: this theme of transparency that says, here's how we do it, here's how you can borrow it, and a developer working on it, to use your example, this, this weather app, this startup travel app, can now, just by reading the instructions basically, have a quick entry point into borrowing data from other sources.
1: Yeah, and how this affects the tech stack is the decoupling of the interface layer and the business logic layer. So typically you had a a tighter coupling of those two layers, meaning the, the, the data processing and manipulation of the business logic layer was very close to and integrated with the interface layer.
0: Because all of the data and logic was your own.
1: Correct. And so then you had this kind of advancement. It was called SOAP, another acronym. And I even forget what that one meant. But that kind of was, that was the evolution of like, we, we need to have, to have better separation between these two layers so that we have one business logic layer that many people can kind of pull data from. And finally, you know, the JSON API, the REST API came out, which really kind of unified a, a way of exposing that business logic layer and so that's why it's it's an exciting time in in this type of development because you know you could kind of almost pick and pull from different business logic layers throughout the internet and so you need, like in this example weather and flight information but you could have any type of data you could think of there's probably an api for it there's there's huge api repositories online that catalog thousands of apis that exist and what they do and so it's it's so much easier to get and integrate data into some application and what is now evolving is that companies are starting to expose apis willingly so there is kind of this protectionism around the business logic. That's my business logic. That's my data. Uh, and that's my IP. That's the company's IP. I'm not going to expose it. But now there's ways they've realized they can monetize that for the number of you know requests you make from the API and so on. And especially the newer companies, the tech startups kind of have that mentality already as they kind of are built. So, for example, Uber has an API. I could interact with uber and create my own interface on top of it and underneath it is the service and the data that i'm accessing but it's using my interface and my application and i'm just interacting with their api
0: right i mean i i think facebook i credit facebook in large part for spreading this mentality remembering back to some of the earliest uh, web applications that we built at the development factory and it was everybody wanted you know log in with facebook commenting with Facebook and those are all examples I think of that API integration where Facebook said hey we already have people using Facebook if you want to let them log in with their Facebook accounts we're happy for that and it made business sense for them because it was just more exposure the more people that were logging in with Facebook the more they were able to retain users attract users so there was a business advantage to Absolutely. openness that to your point was a very different mindset of that closed proprietary that's my IP I don't want anyone to, to see it and it's like have my IP because the more people that have it the more more I have access to those customers
1: yeah it's it, it's in essence the enlarging of platforms and I mean again the, the idea of that existed but I, I agree Facebook was one of the first to create kind of it's almost a global platform. And the examples you give aren't necessarily this idea of the JSON REST API for Facebook, but they are examples of integrating with their platform for accessing data or making user interaction easier. And absolutely, it's a great thing for Facebook because it's a platform play. And what that means is they become underneath everything. And so if they own your login, you you can't log into that other site. You go to some site like uh, mynotepad.com or something, and you log in using Facebook. What that really means is you can't log into mynotepad without Facebook. And so they become the platform for authentication, which is comes with a lot of control, a lot of power, and you know subversively, you might say they also do things like embed pixels into some of these processes to fully track you. So you'd be surprised how much data Facebook tracks, even with these methods other than uh, their ad platform. So absolutely, the idea of platforms, the idea of owning the community and the platform around it is very powerful because when you're integrated in so many places, it's so much harder to come in and defeat you. If you, if you have, for example, the weather API that everybody uses, a new weather startup has difficulty it's a full ecosystem that relies on your api
0: right it becomes an unfair advantage a right. true unfair advantage absolutely so you're talking a lot about the the benefit of accessing other system apis in order to accelerate development quickly prototype or release products where you didn't have to sort of pay to create a specific database for like you said for weather for flights etc you wrote an article on medium i'll share it in in the show notes but i think it's a great article it's called api first and it's talking a lot about the importance not just of using leveraging other people's apis but actually building your own um, as a product company can you talk to us a little bit about why you think it's important that product companies have an API of their own.
1: Yeah, that's a it's it's a good point and a good an important thought especially for startups to think about I think these days because you can see that there's a market and there's a there's a world where APIs are pretty dominant and do give you a distinct advantage for for your company, if your ecosystem of, of data, essentially. And there's kind of this uh, movement, I would say, or, or understanding now of, of the idea of digitizing your company or becoming a digital company. And you might have heard things like UPS is a digital company now nike is a digital company what does that really mean it means that their physical product or service is secondary to the ability for them to expose their business logic and their services using things like apis and this is prevalent inside the company it's not just that they expose it outside it's they have apis inside the company which they expose to different parts of the company and so inside the company have this ability to innovate and integrate different parts of the business into new ways of applying itself. And so when you when you think about UPS, for example, being a digital company, inside you have this kind of innovation and they've exposed their API. So now when you want to ship something or you want to integrate shipping into your website, you integrate with their API. That's how they've, again, created a platform that people integrate with and they they get more embedded into the market, more embedded into all these other sites and services. And they kind of sprawl and they have a community of developers around them. You have this large ecosystem and they're a digital first company because in fact that ecosystem is larger than their physical ecosystem. and touches more people, is more integrated and more valuable than necessarily the physical aspects of the business.
0: Right, I mean, you you spoke before about monetizing through APIs. I think Salesforce is probably the most well known example of this. It's oh, you yeah. number one, you have to upgrade to, you know, professional or enterprise level account so that you can even access the API, and then we're still gonna you know charge you per call. So I think one answer it sounds like is it could become a revenue source for you potentially at scale, but maybe even as an, a niche service offering. But I'm glad that you brought up Nike because I think it shines a light on another element which you're getting at, which is APIs as a way of improving or integrating the customer experience. And I remember you know working for years with agencies, there was this sort of heyday of everybody wants a microsite. everybody wants an app. So you know you might have a big brand, like McDonald's. And they've got six or seven different agencies that are all working with them in one capacity or another. And every agency at the time is vying for an opportunity to build some useless mobile app that no one ever wants anyway. And so, you know, there's the McDonald's contest app over here and the McDonald's Coca-Cola combined app over here. And what became evident and frustrating for users is I have all these different apps and it doesn't seem like they're talking to each other and they weren't talking to each other
1: yeah i, I think that's a really great use case and demonstration of the power the potential power of an api so suppose in that scenario McDonald's said you know what we're going to come up with an api for centralizing user data and this uh, api allows any agency to interact with that api and continue the the profile and experience of the user in a meaningful way. And suddenly, instead of all these separate experiences, separate registrations, you have a unified uh, way of creating the profile and continuing that profile in in the entire, uh, you know, universe of different promotions or campaigns or, or so on and apart from this mcdonald's retains the all the information and all the power of that information of that data versus the agency retaining it using it for their own purpose and not using it properly
0: or and, even just the fragmentation of it.
1: right and and, it, and it's fragmented so you know that's a great example of of you know when you think about becoming a digital company or, or being more digital as a company there's very good use cases for impacting the customer experience and at the same time creating huge business value and that's you know the really one of the very powerful aspects of of APIs is is exactly that is impacting those two areas and making it even easier for development to happen for developers and in that world let's say McDonald's did do that that uh, thing that API you could say to the development community, make your own campaigns. Come up with creative ways to promote McDonald's. Here's our API for accessing the user information. You know, you, you have to control that a certain way, but that's really what empowers developers to play with it and be innovative. And that's what creates this kind of atmosphere of as a developer, I'm I'm part of the community, I'm part of building something, I'm part of experimenting with what we can do with this information. And you have this crossing of, of using data and creating interfaces and customer experiences that you you didn't have before. And you're not, your internal team at McDonald's could have never thought of all these things that thousands of other people have thought about or played with and something really innovative can emerge from that.
0: Right. And to close the loop on Nike, I think, you know, it's, it's just maybe because I have brand affinity there, but I think they have so many products and I'm a user of many of them, Nike Run Club, Nike Training, Nike.com, and I love as a customer that my login and my profile follows me through those places. And I know that it's to their benefit that they're collecting data and then they're able to serve me up ideas and offers that are specific to me. It's okay because I buy in, right? I, I, I choose to participate in their ecosystem and therefore I value the fact that their ecosystem knows me. It's not that, you talked about silos earlier on in. in in our conversation and, and that's also reminds me of the classic like dealing with companies like american express and you get two calls on the same day from the same company and neither seems to have any idea that you have a an active account with them right they're trying to sell you a new product i mean it's it's
1: poor yeah and, and i mean certainly some of those point to this function of the company as a whole of not thinking through that customer experience and that kind of ties back to the product mentality and treating that as a holistic idea and some of it also has to do with this infrastructure aspect or technical aspect of of apis of thinking how to be more holistic and more centralized in a way of and exposing that allowing interaction with that by other parties, by other departments within Amex, by people outside of Amex? How do we you know, create that community? How do we allow the community to build on top of that to create even more value? And so in the Nike example, I, I don't actually know, but maybe there's a way for developers to access your runner profile and your last runs. So let's say I'm making a meal planner I or mean, something.
0: Candidly, that data's taken a little bit of a downward <laughs> slope. <laughs> So hopefully not right now.
1: now. (laughs) Uh, But let's say I built a meal plan application and I, I integrated with the Nike API. And so in my app, I can pull in how much you ran today or this week or where you've been. And I could do things like recommend the appropriate meal. I could do things like recommend a meal at the end of your run path, typical end of your run path. Uh, based on information I have about restaurants that would be suitable. So that's an example of like, you, you could suddenly be creative about it, pull in that data, add even more value to it. And you have these kind of increasing value chains when you integrate these services and APIs together.
0: Okay, moving away from APIs for a moment and coming back to this concept of how technical does a PM need to be, understanding how products are put together. I think another topic of importance is maybe perhaps even the most important for PMs, especially if they're not technical and not really required to own that knowledge, that domain expertise, is assessing the impact of change, right? So change is inevitable in product and if your organization is is agile and embraces the, the sort of the adaptive qualities of the Agile principles, then you know change is inevitable because you're pushing out a feature, you're collecting feedback from the users, you're collecting feedback from the stakeholders, you're iterating on that feature or on that module. So can you talk to us a little bit about the impact of change or the cost of change in the development world and, and what we as PMs can take away from that in order to be better at our jobs?
1: Yeah, uh, great question. I, I think it does come up a lot in terms of, especially if you're less technical, and this uh, ability to understand what a request means or how to think about uh, the impact of a proposed change. And this is where it becomes necessary to have at least a fundamental understanding of how these applications work and these different layers or tiers to an application. And Sometimes I like to think of it or express it as a as a metaphor for it's like a building in that the the data layer the permanent storage layer is kind of like the foundation the business logic is the is the structure of the building itself the beams and the kind of the making the rooms and then inside the room the interior decoration and, and that kind of thing is like the interface so that's helpful in terms of realizing that when you impact Or when you need to change the the data layer the storage layer it might impact every single layer above it it might not but that's rare Uh, maybe you change the foundation just you know away from the building or something and you don't you don't need to deal with the building but sometimes if you need to change the foundation and it happens to be below the main beam of the building you realize it's it's a really big change you know you have to deal with structurally reinforcing that beam while you do the work it might impact all the units in the building that are next to that beam it might impact the whole structural integrity of the building itself and so you know the impact could be huge and so i think one of the one of the aspects of thinking about impact and thinking about where could this could potentially lead is being able to at least at a high level discern, will this impact just the interface? Will it impact the business logic layer? Or will it go as deep as the data layer? And then being able to talk through that with your team, with developers, and understanding that there's differences when those areas are impacted is very valuable and i think the development team themselves will will really appreciate the the knowledge you're you're bringing to the table in understanding that you know it's not just copy and paste fix something even if it's a seemingly interface change i i just want to change the number that i show in this interface it could mean now i need a new calculation which means business logic impact And it could also mean now I need to store data in a different way, which could mean data layer impact. So this seemingly small adjustment to what I'm showing the user has kind of a a ripple effect through the whole application. All the layers of application could be a big impact. And so that's how I would, as a non-technical person, suggest to think of it is uh, try to think through to what depth does the change affect.
0: So the cost of change increases the deeper into the building construct, the deeper into the application construct that you go.
1: Exactly. And I, I think it's a, you know, I, I want to be mindful, of someone more technical listening, you know, it's a rule of thumb. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily always apply. But in general, when you're going deeper, you're, you're having a, a much larger impact because It could mean affecting all the layers above it when you change the use of a font in an application there's no way it could impact the data layer but if you change the data structure of a database there's many reasons it could impact business logic and also the interface layer so it's just knowing how deep and having that conversation with developers and knowing that that's where it's it's going to go right where is it going to really change uh, the application, which layer, and how does that impact the other layers?
0: Let's go back to something that you you talked about earlier, or I asked you about earlier, which is, you know, as a developer, which programming languages are, are good to start and focus on. And you see a lot of people advertising for full-stack developers. Everyone wants a full-stack developer. And even just in this conversation, one thing that that's emerging for me is each of those layers of the tech stack is as you've described them represent a very different type of knowledge, a different type of thinking, Absolutely. different type of understanding. So how valid in your opinion is this term full stack developer? Is it, is it possible to be a full stack developer, truly?
1: Uh, good question. And uh, I definitely see that come up uh, often. And and it's kind of a term being thrown about a lot and it depends a bit on the context. And what I mean by that is if, if you're building WordPress sites, you can be a full stack developer. Uh, You're not exactly, you know, inventing something novel or, you know, doing something really challenging. I think the difference with products is you do need specialization in understanding each of these layers. As as you said, you need to know what the impact is of structuring data a certain way. And how you know, let's say you're making a reporting application or a, an application that has a reporting component, the way you structure the database and how you index the data and how the relationships are between tables, or which database you use, do you use Mongo, you use MySQL, Maria, you use Microsoft, Oracle, whatever. All these could have impacts in terms of performance and. Yeah, I don't. I don't really see a singular person having the ability, especially when it's a complex application or a high-performance application, being a full-stack developer. So it's valid, you know, to a degree. But if you're building a, a quick prototype, you're building something simple, you're building a, a you know, a website. You know, you could get away with it, especially these days. There's frameworks for quickly scaffolding databases. So you, Full-stack developers of that nature, you know, can get away with, you know, I know the day I know the idea of tables, of data relationships, of queries, and that's good enough for sure to make a simple website, a prototype. You know, like you, you don't need to be a data scientist, but if you're then building Uber. Uh, and there's millions of requests on your database and there's reports you need to compile and there's transactions you need to take care of, no, I don't think there's a full stack developer that could you know equally you know code the the interface and the business logic and look at the data layer and be proficient in all of those layers you might have understanding uh in those layers but you do need specialists for dealing with each of these layers
0: right it, it brings back the the generalist versus specialist construct that even i think is is prevalent for pms is that you know to be a product manager who is absolutely versed and excellent as a user experience researcher and designer and clear about usability and conducting usability tests and learning from them as well as understanding programming and all of the layers as well as understanding the a populated landscape of digital marketing strategies quickly shines a light on the difference between I know a bit about everything, enough to be conversational or enough to participate in the strategic discussion, which is different from I can really own this and and be excellent at this one thing.
1: I have a high regard for good generalists, uh, and I, I think I am one myself, and so I, I do want to define that as you know, you, you can't be a generalist that doesn't have significant knowledge of each body or each domain. So when I say generalist, I don't mean like you you read a, a book and, you know, learned about it for a month. That's not a generalist of that topic to me. That That's just, you kind of know something maybe. Uh, so when I say generalist, you do have to have a fairly good depth of knowledge in each of these fields. And I think it is very challenging to have enough knowledge in each of these fields to be a a proficient or good product manager. And I think you you have to be um, interested in learning a lot. You have to assimilate a lot of stuff to be a really good product manager, because all of these do- domains have specifics and you have to know enough to, again, understand what that domain is about and speak the language of the domain. So when you go talk to a database guy, you know, you know what a query is. Or
0: gal. Or Just wanna throw that out yeah. there. or gal.
1: You know what a query is. And when they're explaining the length of the query, you know, you, you get the concept, you get what they're talking about. It might take you a second to get them to explain it in a clearer way, a cleaner way, or uh, or something like that but you, it's not like you're lost and he says query and you're like what's a query uh, that would be not good
0: isn't what's a query actually a query unto itself? <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> we on the same topic of speaking the language right and another thing that is essential for being a great product manager is your ability to persuade or get different team members aligned and that those different team members perceive the world and and interact in the world very differently is a big challenge for product managers. And I think many people have specifically experienced the challenge of working effectively with developers. Right. So as a developer, I mean, you're a jovial guy, seem (laughs) pretty easy to talk to. What advice can you offer to PMs for Better relationships with their development team.
1: I have that question posed to me quite a bit as well, because I guess I'm in this you know position of of CTO or whatever, and I'm I'm supposed to know better, I guess. And uh, maybe I do, maybe I don't. But what I found uh, typically, the problem is that you are not empathetic and you're not speaking their language. So you often, I think, from the perspective of the developer, the the impression is you just don't get it. You just don't get it. You're talking about silly things. Silly like you're, you're using a, an analogy or a metaphor and you're trying to explain to me, the guy who makes the code, how I should do this thing when it's m- more complicated than what you think. And so I think one, having more knowledge in the domain is, is very helpful and so that you can speak that language, you can understand where they're coming from when they say something is complicated or it takes more time. And second, be empathetic in the, in the situation of coming at a problem or, or coming with a problem and knowing that they think about it a different way and not being too, I know better. Uh, about it essentially and being open to understanding their perspective and seeing how they they think about want to solve the problem i think another thing often with developers is they have a tendency to say no right away they they want to shut down ideas right away in that you know it is complicated it's complicated to do some things and but there's always a good solution there's always a solution there. Usually, every developer is a problem solver, and they can rethink the problem later and kind of come up with a better solution. And so sometimes it's it's good to just leave it, even with a note. And you know, good developers never leave a problem alone. <laughs> and so you you can trust
0: sometimes to their own detriment.
1: Right. So you can it's it's I think it's a very effective way to state a problem, and they're like, no, it's it would take way too long. It's just impossible. I would have to change the database and like uh, so on and. And you'll be like okay you know just maybe think about it i don't know and then come back the next day and you and i think you'll see that they've they've not let it go and they've come up with alternatives in terms of solving the problem and and suddenly are more open to how to how to go about it and i think that that's i think it's an important thing to know that there's a natural tendency for an engineer or developer to be like you don't get it it's more complicated it's not possible in this context of you know you're saying in next print or next release or whatever and sometimes you just leave it and let it sit for a bit so that they can think about alternatives or discuss it with themselves and not be too like i know it's possible or I you need to do it this way or needs to be done i think valuing the thought process and the problem solving process is a is a good way to to be empathetic to a developer
0: yeah i think those are all really good points i i I like this visual come up for me of having a feather and just sort of tickling it against that problem solving (laughs) nerve system where it's like now now you've got me all thinking about how to solve a problem and it's a good way to ignite the passion right. in in folks. I, I think another one that I would throw in the ring as well is sharing the vision, sharing the strategy. For sure. Not treating developers, whether consciously or or unconsciously, as you know, code monkeys is the term that comes up a lot. But actually recognizing that they are creative people as well in their way of being creative, and that not only can the organization benefit tremendously from sometimes having them in the room or in the conversation but that it actually i think helps with buy-in
1: absolutely that's a really good point and and i think that that is a very common you think about you know i think about this world of finally in in the product you know strategy room you brought in the designer this is this is a common kind of written about concept of like bringing the designer to the fore um, in terms of your product thinking and it just points to the fact that you still ignore developers and so there is this strong strong impression for developers and and for everyone that you know it is code monkeys they just do the work they're the the manual labor in essence and that's a really poor way to think about in my opinion i think the development programming uh, is is a very creative medium and you're problem solving constantly at, at every level. And I think that level of thinking is very valuable and should be as brought to the front as much as possible. And I think you'll see probably over over the next you know few years that the startups have usually the founder or part of the founding team, a technical person, but it's still not prevalent in, in terms of a company to bring that thinking to the strategic level. And so I do think it will, it will evolve over time to be like, yeah, we brought the designer, but you know, we forgot the developers. We should bring the developer to the table as well in terms of having that input at a, at a strategic level. But taking it back to kind of the development team, uh, I do think often they're they're kind of put in the back room and you know, the, in the dungeon and absolutely, you know, sharing with them the vision, the why, where it's going, what is really the, the idea behind creating something or solving a certain problem uh really helps them to be feel part of the team and kind of give give more to the project
0: thank you we do uh i like to ask all of our guests as we move toward the end of uh, the interview here you know advice for up-and-comers words of of wisdom or cautionary tales for places or failure and and just Celebrating in the role. I want to frame it a little bit more specifically for you to take advantage of, of your your domain expertise so a lot of times people end up in product because they are currently working in one of those Domains that product touches as a cross-functional role So you're a UX designer and you want to become more strategic more holistic around the product development process You're a developer And you want to become more strategic, more holistic around the product development process. What advice would you give to folks listening in that are currently working in developer roles, but who feel that they're ready to move into that more strategic center of product management for making that transition?
1: Yeah, I think... um... You know, I, I haven't often, maybe that's kind of a symptom of this, of this code monkey kind of mentality. I haven't often seen really developers move into product management kind of roles. Um, but I think it's a very available path, if you will. And like I was saying, you know, it's, it's an important perspective for the, in the product world, having that technical expertise, but I would say if you want to make the transition and you're more towards development, you have to have a very keen interest in the business. Uh, side of things and in the customer side of things, in the the UX. So I, I think you need to move more towards understanding the drivers in these worlds, how people think in these worlds, and how to apply yourself in these worlds. So that would mean being a lot more proactive in, you know, let's say you're doing experiments and building your own software and whatever, thinking a lot more about the UX side of it. What, what is the interface? How does the interface impact the experience of the user? And then going through and thinking, uh, how could I make this into a business? What am how could I position it in the market? How could I sell this product? And it, once you start going through it, you realize how much more there is. I, I think one of the, the flip side of that we talked about the developer and being empathetic as a product manager, the flip side is the developer needs to be more empathetic to these, to these concepts. And you, I think often a mentality from an engineer's point of view is I do the hard part. I do the hard part of figuring out how something works and that's really hard. And I did that. And the the interface is like, whatever, it's easy. The business is easy, but that's delusional. I, I feel it's strongly delusional because when you actually get into these domains, it's incredibly difficult as well, you know, having a good interface is not simply using a bootstrap template, and making the buttons pretty, and having a good business and marketing and sales is not simply putting up a landing page with three packages, you're, you're, you're overly simplifying. And it's ironic that they, you know, they're, they're upset when they themselves are simplified, but then simplify these other domains. But if you're a developer, you wanna to move towards that, that's where you need to go is expand your mind and look at these areas and have more curiosity, more engagement with you know interface, how things work on an interaction level and how business works. What are the drivers to business? What are the drivers to acquisition, to retention? Uh, those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, I think in the history of product businesses that have started up and failed, uh, almost none of them failed because they couldn't build the product. Right. So I think it, it definitely does honor what you're describing, which is growth is hard, right? Yeah. It's in fact the hardest part, I think, in many ways, for sure. What about hard lessons? I mean, what in particular do you think is challenging about the product manager role that they sort of don't tell you about in the books? So you kind of unpleasantly discover it on the job.
1: Uh, It's a good question. I mean, there's so many uh, challenges, frankly. Um, Probably the toughest is pointing things in the same direction with all parties. And I I think since you're in the middle, you're getting pulled in all directions. And when you're really successful is you actually, uh, from you, kind of uh, push out a sense of direction and a sense of integrating all these ideas into that, where am I going with it? And you think about you know, sales and marketing, wanting certain things from the product. Uh, you think about the customer feedback and wanting certain things from the product. You think about the dev team and what they wanna be do, working on and how they're working and what's possible. And all these things are kind of around your head, in your head, outside your head, everyone's interacting with you, there's pressure to do things but ultimately when you are able to assimilate all this and get everyone to agree that this is the right direction and this is the right list of priorities the right plan or uh, product plan or roadmap uh, i think that's the really hard part and that's what really makes the successful one successful is they're able to assimilate all this information come up with the direction and then again go outside and convince everyone that this is the right thing to do and that's uh, you know incredibly difficult I would say
0: maybe you said it before in talking about how you came to be in technology but what is your favorite thing about product management being a product manager
1: uh, I guess it would be uh, the necessity to learn uh, I think it forces you to think about so many things and look you know I'm, I'm curious I like to learn I'm curious. And so it's 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 great for that. You know, you, you need to know all these things. I It's almost like finally a place for a good generalist. You know what I mean? It's I think it, in many ways, generalists have been frowned upon for a long time in society. And I think a product manager is a de facto generalist. You have to be that person that understands a lot of things and integrates all this information. And so having found a place for my generalistism, ism uh, I think that's the greatest thing is, you know, pe- people need you to know a lot of things and integrate that information, and that comes with the requirement of being curious, learning a lot, communicating a lot with others, and that's, uh, for me, you know, fun and exciting.
0: And I guess for you specifically, learning a lot as long as nobody tells you how to learn. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What, uh, on the topic of learning, do you have any, you said you listen to the show, we love fans of the show, what other recommended resources would you like to contribute for, for those of you listening at the 100productmanagers.com website, we've got a resources page, we include all of the recommendations from our guest there, Andrew, do you want to add any essential titles to that growing list for our audience?
1: Well I've happened to have seen the site and uh, there's a lot of good stuff on there so it's it's really difficult I guess to contribute something unique I think a lot of a lot of the guests have pointed to a lot of product management resources so I think one of the guests pointed to the fact that you should learn about other things other than product management and I that's what I tend to uh, like to do is you can't get too deep into these concepts and philosophies of product management in terms of you know th- there's only so much you can try at once there's only so much you can actually act on and so sometimes I I have this sense of, of people like you read every methodology but it can't all be useful uh, I think you have to be more methodical you know thought through about what you're applying and what you're learning and the other side of it is you know keeping your mind open to everything else it's almost like you don't have to be this like learn about everything Uh, and I mean everything. One of my favorite places is Quora uh, where you have random questions and you know they they send you uh, a newsletter every day with the top questions and it's random information and I you know I I like that I like that break from you know product technology you need this kind of sense of all this random stuff and what people are thinking about Um, and Quora is a great one you know medium is certainly a great one where I don't actually read about technology on medium uh it's more social issues what's happening in the world and one one i i, I would mention i, I want to mention that's really great especially if you're a nerd is pbs space time uh which is fantastic it's on youtube uh it's this like uh i think british guy uh just talk about astrophysics and physics is another one of my i really love physics and um it's a really great show, so I I would strongly recommend if you like physics, if you like you know astronomy, if you like you know the meaning of relativity's kind of concepts. Uh, it's a fantastic show. It's very accessible. I mean, it is a bit more than uh, kind of the entertainment uh, science show, but he's got a great way of breaking it down, and uh, so that's that would be my contribution, I guess, because there's so much on product already.
0: PBS Spacetime. PBS
1: Spacetime, yeah.
0: Cool. Do you have a side of the mug inspirational quote or mantra that you use to govern yourself in the world that you want to share with us before we go?
1: I've had a few, I guess. I've, uh, I like these kind of catchphrases in a way to, you know, it reminds you kind of the, mo- the one at the moment that comes to mind uh, is it's not a problem unless it's a problem. And why, why kind of I've come up with that or say that is, you know, a lot of people like to waste a lot of time when it's not really a problem. So I, I think it's just it's just something lately that's come up where you know, especially with clients and stuff and situations where we're talking about something. And is that really a problem or it's not a problem? So let's not really spend time on it. Um, it's not worth the energy. It's not really a problem. So I guess that's the one at the moment that I can think of because it's it's come up in the past year or two and it's been the, the mantra of the, of the moment.
0: Well, I like that a lot because I, I'm a big proponent of not worrying right? You know, because it doesn't typically lead to, to solving problems and is, as you say, generally outside of any context. And I think it also really encapsulates the idea of lean practice which is about reducing waste and not worrying about things until they're proven to be things that need to worry about so it's not a problem oh, unless that's it's a problem, a problem. <laughs> that's i love right. it andrew Bodis, chief technology officer at the development factory thank you so much for joining us on the show been a pleasure you've been listening to season one of 100 p.m We're on a mission to talk to 100 product managers and we're off to the windy city next. Tune back in this June for more new episodes from awesome product folks in Chicago. If you're new to our show, you've got 30 episodes. Head on back to the beginning and catch up. And if you're a fan, please do us a favor and leave us a positive rating and review on iTunes so that others can discover us more easily. We have tons of great articles and free information on our website, including the complete list of guest-recommended resources. Find it all at www.100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. Thanks for listening.